Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. Last week, the UN General Assembly officially elected Antonio Guterres as the next UN Secretary General. Guterres is a well-known figure around the UN and in global politics more broadly. From 2005 to 2015, he served as the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, and before that, he served as Prime Minister of Portugal. His term begins on January 1st, and I thought it would be useful and interesting to learn more about Guterres from two distinct perspectives. So this episode is in two parts. First, I speak with a Portuguese political commentator, Pedro Adao e Silva, who discusses Guterres's political career in Portugal and more broadly the political context in which Guterres emerged as a national leader and political figure. We discuss some of the key moments of his term as prime minister and how his background and experience in the Portuguese revolution against an authoritarian regime may shape his performance as secretary general. Next, I speak with Michel Gabaudin, who is the president of the advocacy organization Refugees International. Gabaudin was a senior official at the UN Refugee Agency for many years and served in top positions while Guterres was in charge of it. He offers some perspective on Guterres' leadership style in a complex UN agency and shares some insights into the skill sets he possesses and how he interacts with powerful member states like the USA. I was so glad to get both of these perspectives. You know, Guterres is someone who I've followed closely while he was head of the UN Refugee Agency. I've seen him speak on a number of occasions, and both Pedro and Michelle do a good job of helping me understand how someone who has been so outspoken, and in the words of Michelle, quote, speaks truth to power, could still win favor of the world's most powerful countries. And now here is Pedro Adao e Silva, and I should note, Pedro often refers to, quote, social issues, which in an American political context connotes something different from what he means. He's referring to social welfare issues and issues of economic justice. And now here he is. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Contrary to most uh, political leaders uh, on the left in Portugal, it doesn't come for, from a, a far left uh, movement or from Republican movement, but rather from um, a Catholic uh, grassroots uh, movement. So he has kind of a different uh, perspective and a, a different uh, way of approaching democracy. And I think that marked uh, his, his political career. Uh, he became a, mem- a founding member of the Socialist Party just right after the revolution. And then, but his formative experience is different from all the other main figures of the political, of, of the Socialist Party. So he's a social democrat, well, using uh, European labels, mm-hmm. but he's a social democrat 
with a social a Christian uh, mark as well. So uh, this is a different combination in Portugal politics, but also, I would say, in Southern European uh, politics. So, so how has that sort of Catholic, um, le- I guess, left-wing Catholicism or Catholic liberation ideology, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call mm-hmm. it, um, how had that manifested his early days as, as a political leader? Mm-hmm. Well, it's more of a, a social left-wing uh, Catholic than someone with links to uh, uh, Catholic liberation uh, theories. Mm -hmm. But it it, it had a set of implications, uh, mainly when he became prime minister, because Guterres is someone who is much more liberal, from using the American expression, in social issues and in labor issues than in uh, post-material ones. So um, he was always more interested in uh, policies for fighting poverty or uh, expansion of universal education than focusing on uh, post-material issues like, for instance, abortion. Mm -hmm. And I'm mentioning abortion because this was a main issue while he was prime minister, because he was leader of a party who was in favor of legalizing um, abortion, and he was against Ah. And uh, there was a, a national referendum, and um, he won the referendum in the sense that the majority of the population voted for, voted no, while the party was in favor. And this, to some extent, in that period, uh, um, provoked kind of a, a huge cleavage between him and um, and, and and leftist uh, parties, and and, and basically the electorate that was voting for all left leftist parties. But he was, he was always putting more uh, pressure and more political focus on uh, social and educational issues. So while he was prime minister, anti-poverty policies were um, developed in Portugal and the, the, the educational system expanded its coverage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, and there, there was another implication that that is part of his Catholic tradition, that that um, he was pushing reforms forward, but uh, trying to implement them by um, mobilizing local partnerships between state and civil society. So he tried to bring um, to um, his, his his policy priorities all the charities that were linked to the Catholic Church, that are really important in Portugal. And, and really embedded in, in Portuguese society. So there was like a, a renewal of the partnership between the central state and civil society, meaning basically a uh, mm-hmm. third sector, and uh, civil, civil organizations, grassroots movements. Including the uh, Catholic Church. To the Catholic Church. Okay. Mainly the mm-hmm. Catholic Church, I would say. So this kind of, um, this kind of political priorities, anti-poverty, uh, universal education, was complemented with a specific way of implementing policies through local partnerships involving the central state, local authorities, mm-hmm. but also uh, uh, non-governmental organizations. This might explain why, why civil society uh, has so been been so championing of his candidacy for secretary general. That's interesting. He has kind of a, yeah. a deep yeah. history well, of working that's, with. That's um, why I was stressing yeah. this because I, I was. I, I didn't follow his candidacy from the beginning, mm-hmm. but when I started following it, I, I noticed that. that yeah, NGO all people NGOs love him. Yeah. love him. And it makes sense. It's nothing new. It's the way um, he's used to 
develop policies. But that's so basically, he's it... bringing to a new level something that he was doing before at the, at the national level. I want to like turn turn back a little bit and learn a little bit more about his background. Like, what kind of family did he grow up in? I mean, every politician, at least in America, has this kind of narrative that they've told about themselves that gets ingrained in our national, you know, psyche. Um, does mm-hmm. what's what's um, Gutierrez's uh, narrative? Okay, well, that doesn't happen to the same extent in Europe, especially in and Portugal. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> so we know we don't know as much about him, uh, but basically, he comes from a middle class family from Lisbon, though he has roots in the interior of Portugal, in the rural area of Portugal. And um, but he, he studied in Lisbon. He took his uh, university degree in Lisbon. He's an engineer. He was always the best student in class both in high school and university. So he graduated with the highest mark. And as I was telling you, uh, he started teaching right after um, graduating. But he was not a university professor for long because he moved towards political and social intervention. That's part of also of the atmosphere that Portugal was uh, living in the, in the mid-70s, in the early 70s, in the mid-70s, in the late 70s. So, right before the revolution, over the revolution, and in the period of democratic consolidation. So, so he's also part of that uh, uh, political context, which is very specific to Portugal. So so let's talk about the, the context of the political revolution, the so-called Carnation Revolution, which right. uh, I take is what really inspired Gutierrez uh, to, to politics. I think he was inspired to politics just before the revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it tends to tell the story that uh, um, um, in the late 60s, uh, there was a big flood uh, uh, in Lisbon, and he was uh, part of the, of the students' movement that uh, started helping people that were affected by the flood. And that social experience, which meant that for someone from Lisbon, uh, from the city center, middle class, it, it was a confrontation with, with extreme poverty. Um, and that was uh, something that marked him. And over his political career, I think that was his driving objective. So uh, social issues, uh, anti-poverty was something that was always present and it was present from the beginning. So he became a politician because of social uh, um, uh, preoccupations and not so much as it was happening with other people that became uh, relevant figures in Portuguese uh, political uh, uh, in Portuguese politics after the revolution because of um, uh, ideological uh, debates or um, uh, preoccupations with freedom or uh, civic rights. That was also present within. But if you have to uh, um, kind of hierarchize uh, its priorities, I would say that social issues were coming on top. So, and and and, and that's quite different from all other leaders from the Socialist Party. The Socialist Party had like six leaders since the revolution or seven, and that he is different from the others. Um, his, his trajectory is different from all the others. And it was marked by that experience. And that experience is associated to the fact that he was a Catholic mm-hmm. and not uh, an, an atheist, which is what happens with all other uh, Most, socialist yeah. leaders in Portugal. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you give us just like a brief history lesson on the Carnation Revolution? 
Um, what what inspired it? What was the the there was a fascist regime for like forty years ahead, and then the Croatian mm-hmm. Revolution happened, which was obviously like the major political moment. We had an authoritarian regime for four decades, and then so it was a right wing authoritarian regime, closely linked to the Catholic Church. So what we also had in Portugal is that some uh, groups in the Catholic Church uh, started uh, radicalizing themselves and. And, and trying to change the regime from within. And, and basically what happened in, in the mid-70s is that we had a colonial war uh, in Africa, and that was the factor that uh, provoked and caused the revolution, because the military was no longer willing to, uh, to fight the war in Africa. Mm-hmm. So it was like a, a combination of um, economic and development, um, European pressure in the sense that uh, it was hard to um, maintain and sustain a dictatorship in an European context that was becoming more democratic and the colonial war that kind of uh, made all this uh, uh, moved and, 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 and to a less extent that was the reason for the revolution because the military, that was why it was a coup d'etat uh, and not a, a, a um, a negotiated transition as in Spain because the military didn't want to uh, keep on fighting the war in Africa. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and after the revolution, we had a, a period of, a short period, I'd say of two, three years, when the regime, the nature of the regime was being defined. And there was a, a, a strong cleavage between those that wanted to develop a Western democratic regime and those were the winners of the transition, and those others that wanted to um, uh, to, to to build a democracy, uh, a socialist democracy in, in in Portugal. Those were the losers. Mm-hmm. And the socialist party, though it's called socialist, it's a social democratic party, a labor party, was the driving force behind. Um, uh, a Western style democracy in mm-hmm. Portugal. Okay, so it's almost as if like a competition between like Soviet influence and Western Europe influence at the, at the time, like right. in the context of the Cold War. And even though um, Guterres was considered uh, a socialist, in fact, it's really more of like a social democrat. So he was kind of with the Western European camp. The, the socialist party was the leader oh. of, the, of the Western European camp, mm-hmm. basically because. Western European uh, uh, countries um, understood that they had to support the, cent- the democratic center-left in order to contain the growth of the Communist Party in Portugal. Mm-hmm. So they choose to, to, to support the Socialist Party. Uh, um, Kissinger's choose to support the, the, Communist, the Socialist Party, the SPD in Germany as well, the Labour Party uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in England as well. So uh, the, the Socialist Party became the main party after the, the transition to democracy, followed by the communists. And so how did so, he emerge then? Um, you know, this was obviously a very turbulent period in, in Portuguese history, in European history, you know, in, in, in mm-hmm. fact. Um, what was his reputation during this, this really intense transitional time? Well, uh, the, the Socialist Party is kind of a coalition between uh, young people coming from uh, leftist movements that uh, were radicalizing in universities, old rec- Republicans that come from a more moderate tradition, and some sectors coming from 
social uh, Catholicism. So people coming from the Catholic Church, from social movements uh, linked to the Catholic Church. And that was the smallest group within the Socialist Party by the time. But Kutegas was a leading figure in that group. So he was very young in 74, but he was already someone well-known in his circuit. And so... so and, uh, over the years, then, he uh, obviously built his reputation. Um, how did he emerge as prime minister in the mid-1990s? Mm -hmm. Well, in the mid-80s, um, together with um, two, two or three other uh, political figures, he became one of the main figures in the political party, in the, the Socialist Party, opposing the leader, the uh, the leader of the party, which was uh, Mario Suarez, which was prime minister and then uh, president, so he's kind of the founding father of Portuguese democracy. But he was part of the of the of the of the group in the party that was opposing uh, Suarez from the early eighties. Uh, so when Suarez left to become president, it was kind of natural that sooner or later he would become the, the leader. So he was the the second socialist leader that became prime minister. So you, you had Suarez, who was basically prime minister from 74 up to 85, 86, not all over this period, but he was always the leader and prime minister. And then the socialists only uh, got back to power in 95 with Guterres. And so he so won, kind of, yeah, his, his party won elections in 1995, so he became in, prime minister. In 1995, he became prime minister. He was... The, the, the leading figure in that generation within the party, and he came from a different tradition of the um, of, of the of the prior uh, leaders of the party, um, and this had uh, consequences when he was prime minister because the way the socialist party um, um, was in power after '95 was different from what happened before, so much more close to uh, social movements and. Um, other kinds of uh, policy priorities, uh, more liberal um, in, 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 uh, in material and labor and social uh, issues than in uh, uh, issues as abortion. Mm -hmm. So he, he was also responsible for a, for a policy transformation and a programmatic transformation sort of or like, a modernization of the Socialist Party. Was it almost like an expansion of the welfare state during his time, at the, but while also probably reducing deficits and, and reducing unemployment? Because yes. this was kind of boom to this is a, a boom time. Yeah, he, he was using... He was responsible for a, for a, for an expansion of, of the welfare state, both in education and in social issues, but also for and he used the label, the, the, the that label by then, which is a new generation of social policies, because he was not ex all, only expanding the welfare state, he was also reconfigurating the nature of social policies, and that reconfiguration, for instance, implied a movement from uh, social insurance towards a widening of coverage. And this was done by the central state together with local authorities and uh, um, third sector uh, NGOs. So it was a different way of implementing policies. And this was kind of marked by his uh, past experiences. And um, to some extent, when I listen to him now, what I listen to is still the same guy that did that when he was prime minister in Portugal. So he's doing the same thing at a different scale, but like his um, um, his genetic code is is always the same. 
it is it has been there for decades which is what well a blend of um of 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 preoccupations with social issues and the one uh, the ones that are suffering more but also a very realistic and pragmatic approach towards uh, policy implementation mm-hmm. so is an, an an idealist but he's also a, pragma, a, a pragmatist which is kind of a combination that doesn't occur that often so he's moved by values but he's able to articulate values with the real world um was and, he and, and another tell me tell me well, I, I was wondering so was he also prime minister during the 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 legalization of of drugs in in portugal i mean he is was, that, he so was, is that probably was. like a like a, a manifestation of this kind of pragmatic approach that you're talking about yeah exactly exactly by then it was seen as something very um uh, I'll, I'll say very um, um, vanguardist in the sense that it was a solution that was seen as too advanced to the time. But now everyone recognizes, like European institutions recognize that the Portuguese experience, it's kind of a benchmark. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he has this kind of a, um, an inclination to be a, a deal maker instead of opting for confrontation, for political confrontation. And at the, at the time, that was a problem for him because he didn't have an absolute majority so he had to compromise all the time. And when he left government, one of the reasons why he uses the expression, okay, I'm leaving, I'm resigning in order to avoid um, the situation to become a political swamp. Mm-hmm. And why? Because he had to compromise all the time to, to reach a, a budget, to change specific policies. And everyone was pointing that he, he compromised too much. So to some extent, is more um, of, a, of, a, of, of a diplomat um, with political uh, objectives than a, tra- than a traditional politician that tries to um, stand for particular uh, positions or interests. So that's why I was saying that he's, he's also a pragmatic and a deal maker, because he always tries to reach a, a compromise and a deal instead of, of imposing a, a a view or a solution, which sometimes, if you are a prime minister, is a, is a problem. But maybe if you are the, the, the general secretary of the United Nations, it's not a problem. It's an advantage. Um, finally, do you have another minute or two? Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay. Finally, are there any big for foreign policy decisions that he made that might mm-hmm. uh, inform uh, anything about how he might you know, govern the United Nations? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I think I have to choose three examples. Well, first, the independence of East Timor. So East Timor was a former Portuguese colony. It is a small Catholic uh, country now uh, in the middle of Indonesia. And it was occupied by Indonesia right after uh, the transition to democracy in Portugal. And uh, there was always a fight for uh, independence of East Timor. Um, and it was when he was prime minister, that he was able to, uh, to push this issue to the top of uh, the agenda in the United Nations, in the, in the Clinton administration. Mm-hmm. And uh, East Timor 
co- well, against all odds, became independent. Yes, in in so 2002, the, so during his during his, his time in, in 2002 is when uh, I believe East Timor gained its independence. Um, and yeah, yeah. you know that that also included uh, a limited American intervention in support of Australian forces uh, that were yeah, backed by the United Nations. And 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 the, I think he developed. For instance, Samantha Power is now the ambassador to the United Nations. She was quite involved in the process of of, of East Timor. So I don't know to what extent the fact that they knew each other before and they were fighting together this uh, cause and. Mm-hmm. Um, Helps explaining uh, the, the 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 North American position now mm-hmm. um, during his election. The two other uh, examples. One is the beginning of the of the eurozone, the creation of the European uh, monetary system, uh, what is now the euro. Um, he was one of, of he was one of the European prime ministers by the time that was really in favor of uh, the creation of the euro, of the single currency. Uh, well, Portugal now is kind of a, still suffering from the way the, the single currency was designed. But by the time, it was really optimistic and pushing this issue uh, forward at the European level. You have to, to, to also to remember that he could have been president of the, commission, of the European Commission um, it, when he was prime minister, but he declined because he, he, he wanted to uh, stay as prime minister as he was elected. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, coming from a small uh, country, um, he was kind of, he was able to become uh, someone, he was able to become president of the European Commission also because the big, bigger countries don't want uh, to, to have uh, someone from other bigger country. Uh, as uh, European uh, president. So Barroso was uh, president of the commission, he's also Portuguese, but before Guterres could have, have been in, in decline. And finally, what was uh, uh, the Lisbon strategy? Um, during the Portuguese presidency of the European uh, Union in, uh, in 2000, um, there was a new uh, uh, process of policy coordination that was designed, approved, and developed, um, and, and, and he was the one leading that process and, and used the Portuguese presidency of the European Union to, uh, to push that agenda forward. Um, it was a huge uh, anxious, uh, failure uh, afterwards, uh, also because of the crisis of the sovereign debt, mm-hmm. but by the time it was presented as a, a big leap forward uh, in uh, in European policies, and he was the one uh, responsible for that. Yeah, the Liz- that was a huge deal at the time. I mean, it's, it's worth yeah, emphasizing the, the Liz- that this was just like a transformation or reformation of European Union rules of the game and rules of procedure that was yeah, obviously exactly. hugely so technocratic the, in, in many ways, too. Usually technocratic, and, and that was part of the explanation for the failure, because no one was able to understand it. No one means the, the public and the electorate. But the, the Lisbon summit and the Lisbon strategy were really uh, influential at, at, the, at the policy level. It, it, was, it, it was also part of a, of a specific context when a new labor and new Democrats were uh, the leading political forces and the kind of, of policy principles that are pres- present in the, in the Lisbon strategy are uh, a reflection of that kind of, of, of political uh, atmosphere 
uh, with new labor in Britain, um, new Democrats in the United States, though a little bit before. Yeah. So he's part of that political atmosphere as well. Um, well, this is totally fascinating, Pedro. I'm, I'm particularly interested to learn uh, about his his political roots. That his political roots, like, or his commitment to things like fighting poverty, predate his mm-hmm. entry into the political sphere, which is always an interesting thing to to see from a politician. You know, where they were way back when, before they even thought of becoming a, a politician. Well, especially because Portugal was still a dictatorship, so there was no perspective of becoming a politician because basically <laughs> no one knew when Portugal would become a democracy. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. This was, this was You're fascinating. Welcome. You're welcome. All right. And now here is Michel Gabonin, president of Refugees International. And, and I should note, the UN Refugee Agency and UNHCR are the same thing. They're two ways of, of referring to the same thing. I use them interchangeably, as do most people around the UN. Okay, here's Michel. Well, when Mr. Guterres was, uh, was appointed in 2005 as uh, High Commissioner for Refugees, I was the regional representative for UNHCR in China, for China in Mongolia. And uh, after a few years, he appointed me as his uh, representative uh, in the U.S., for the U.S. and the Caribbean. And this is where I stayed until I retired uh, in 2010. So I worked under Mr. Guterres' uh, uh, wings uh, for five years. And then, of course, since then, in my capacity as heading this NGO, I've had a lot to deal with UNHCR. And uh, and I had the pleasure to deal directly with Mr. Guterres on quite a few on quite a few issues. Um, so, in your time working in a very senior position in the UN Refugee Agency, um, how would you describe um, Guterres's leadership style? Well, I think he brought to the organization a series of uh, of tremendous uh, uh, competencies. I mean, he's uh, obviously a consummate uh, politician with a tremendous understanding on how the world works and of course a, a tremendous amount of contacts so that he brought to UNHCR his ability to you know to pick the phone and talk anybody important among donor governments or in governments where we had lots of refugees on uh, his style I would say he he's someone who listens and then you know thinks over and takes his decision, whether it's to make a speech or whether it's to take a management decision. And he did take decisions, so things did not stay in the air for a long time. He had the tremendous um, capacity to absorb facts and figures. Actually, uh, in many instances, he would read spreadsheets better than some of his uh, more uh, technical colleagues and would take decisions on the base of very uh, serious uh, analysis of uh, of data um, and one of his other qualities was that he was a very good communicator he communicated with passion what uh, he wanted to do uh, and that was sort of uh, i think infectious um in your time working with him either in, in washington dc or in in china i mean were there ever any moments where you uh realized that he was a different kind of leader or or were his, some of the qualities that you just described were were manifest like are there any stories you can tell about your interactions with him or what you've witnessed well uh, certainly well you know the, the the role of the high commissioner is to to stand for the rights of refugees which very often puts 
the high commissioner in 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 conflict with uh, with governments who have other interests, interests of uh, you know whether they they call it national security or or, or, or stability or national interest, etc. The the high commissioner was able uh, to call governments, whether it was the U.S. government when he raised the question of displacement in Iraq as a consequence of the second Iraq war, where it was the Chinese government on the question of North Korean, which is a very sensitive issue for, for good reasons in China, whether recently he's been calling the European governments on, on, on the way they have responded to the mass movements of migrants and refugees on their shore. He's always stood for principles that his position requests that he does, but in a manner that was non-judgmental vis-à-vis the countries he was calling, and where he always expressed also an understanding where they come from. And therefore, I think the fact that he was able to, what I say, speak uh, truth to power, uh, had an impact, and he was not uh, losing grounds because he did that in a non-judgmental manner, and 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 with a clear understanding of the position of the people you have an issue with. Mm-hmm. And I think these these are testimony to his diplomatic skills. See, I saw one of these incidents in, in action. Um, it was a few years ago, was just as, as the Syrian refugee crisis was uh, becoming more and more intense. He gave a speech at the U.S. Institute uh, for Peace in Washington, D.C. And in front of an audience of mostly American government officials, he, in, in rather sharp turns, criticized the U.S. government's resettlement policy vis-a-vis Syrian refugees. And I was sort of actually shocked to see someone who at that point I assumed was going to want to become the next Secretary General uh, criticize, uh, you know, a P5 veto-wielding member state in such, you know, deliberate terms. And and apparently he's gotten away with it. Well, I think it's because he based his criticisms on facts and, again, not on judgment. He said, yeah, this is what I've been asked to do. This is my, if you want, my job description. And these are the facts. And therefore, I'm telling you that you should, you know, respond in a better manner in such and such a way. Um, and and I, I think that uh, governments have come to respect that. I mean, I, I, I saw him dealing with the U.S. government with whom he had excellent relationship, whether it was with the Bush administration or with the Obama administration. Um and and he always said what he had to say, but he was also understanding of the U.S. and, and grateful for the U.S. was doing on many fronts uh, in the humanitarian field. And I think it's his ability to to, to present all this in, in a factual way uh, and is a passion that is his to defend the most vulnerable, the refugees and the, the people who have been displaced by violence, that uh, maintain the his credentials with uh, with donors or with uh, mm-hmm. governments that host them uh, alike. And, and it's probably worth pointing out that the U.S. government uh, is the largest funder of the U.N. Refugee Agency and is also the largest contributor to um, the U.N. Uh, in terms of financial contributions to both the U.N. Uh, regular budget and, and U.N. peacekeeping. So that relationship between uh, the U.S. and the U.N. is, is particularly important. Um, what, what, I Indeed, mean, and I, I, yeah. I would add to that one thing. Uh, this is certainly true, of course, but one thing that Mr. Guterres did at UNHCR, he became the, the fundraiser-in-chief. So though he was confronting governments over the way uh, they were uh, accepting refugees, and many governments were his donors, he at the same time uh, got them to increase substantially their contribution to UNHCR. And I think he's been the most successful 
uh, high commissioner in, 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 as a fundraiser in the history of UNHCR. Uh, why do you think that is? I mean, um, and, and why is fundraising such an important aspect of his job as, as high commissioner? Because, the, you know, the, the, the humanitarian agencies and UNHCR, uh, head of all, gets voluntary contribution from states. So every, every member state of the UN has uh, contribution they have to make to the secretariat. Uh, to the UN in New York. Like and membership are, dues. Yeah, membership, yeah, there are membership dues. Uh, but very little of these membership dues go to UNHCR. Uh, the, the bulk, you know, 95% of the budget of UNHCR are voluntary contribution by member states. So there are additional contributions to the compulsory contribution they have to make. And therefore, you have to convince them that you are, you know, you, you deserve this contribution because your your mandate requires it, but because you manage the issue properly and because you stand for the people you've been asked to defend. And and he's been able to do that. And usually fundraising was left very much to some of the uh, people under the High Commission. I, I was at one point before Mr. Gutez, I was the head of fundraising at UNHCR for one period. <laughs> and and I was doing very much that on my on on, on, on my own. Uh, Mr. Guterres became the fundraiser in chief, and that has allowed the organization to grow substantially in the, its capacity to respond. And because the refugee crisis kept on growing, he was still, unfortunately, always behind the level of needs he wanted to uh, to respond to. But but the the, the growth of of UNHCR in terms of its funding ability has been uh, has, has been extraordinary. Um, and, and to what extent was his ability to uh, attract funders um, due to my understanding is, is that he was able to under or, or to, to shift sort of the management structure and some of the structure of UNHCR headquarters in Geneva, which is, you know, cutting down overhead is always something that major funders, particularly the United States and particularly Republican administrations in the United States are always interested in uh, with UN uh, agencies. So uh, was he able to undertake some sort of management reform issues? He did that after, I think, within six months of his arrival. He took six months to, you know, judge the place, see how it works. As I said, listen to people, look at the figures, which is something he was very good at, and then said, okay, you know, we are spending too much on ourselves. And therefore, we've got, you know, our prime accountability is towards refugees and people who've been displaced by violence and therefore I need to review what are our overheads. So he, he took a, a, a tremendous uh, knife, if you want, cut headquarters, I think by, by I think it was 20%. I mean, I, the figures you would have to ask you in HR, but something like that, uh, sent more people uh, to the front lines and, and also uh, redistributed some of the functions that headquarters was doing in Geneva, which is not the cheapest place in no. the world, to other places like in, in Budapest, etc. You know, so he really looked at the figures and say, if I'm going to be accountable to my beneficiaries, I'm going to be accountable to my donors by making sure that more of the money I get gets to the people in the field. And you can imagine that it's never an easy task to cut posts at headquarters. You know, posts at headquarters are probably the most comfortable in an organization. And and he did that, and he he got away with it, and he was I think very much respected by donors for having had the courage to to confront mm -hmm. his own uh, bureaucracy. 
Um, one thing that you've told me and, and other people have told me is that Guterres sort of styled himself as uh, the high commissioner, as as more than just uh, the, the manager of the organization, but uh, as the voice of refugees, the voice of, of the world's most vulnerable people. Um, to what extent do you think that will still inform how he approaches the job of UN Secretary General, which is, you know, obviously a lot different. I mean, the, the mandate is much broader uh, and you have to deal with a lot more high politics, uh, particularly around the Security Council. Well, uh, two, two points there. One is that he did very much introduce in Union Chair, uh, the, 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 in, in the language, uh, is that we work for refugees. You know, this is our objective. We serve the refugees. And he was very strong in reminding us all the time uh, that this is what the purpose of the organization was. Not that people never thought about it in the organization, but as the head of the organization, he was certainly the most vocal high commissioner in, in stressing that. And that was certainly had an impact on all his staff, I think. And the second point is how will that translate? I mean, I think he will keep that passion for uh, as secretary general, you know, at the end, the objective of the UN is to make this life better for its inhabitants, for people. So I think he will he will keep that sort of uh, driving uh, force within himself. And his experience as High Commissioner, I think, will come in play there. One of his major complaints when he was High Commissioner was to tell member states, look, I can save lives in an emergency but I cannot deal with the whole thing. You know, the, these are political issues. You know, all, all these conflicts, all the solutions for refugees require political decisions. And now he will be in the position where he can confront member states over their lack of capacity to respond at the political level to alleviate the situations he had to confront for the past 10 years and where he felt very often he was left a little bit alone in trying to provide solutions. The solutions are not through humanitarian aid. The solutions are through political resolution of conflict or political uh, courage of governance to provide solution for people who have been displaced. So I think he will mm -hmm. keep his commitment to people, but now be in a position where he can really bring countries together to try to uh, provide the solution. And whenever possible, perhaps even to try to prevent these solutions from developing. Uh, how um, public in these confrontations uh, do you think he'll be? I mean, as, as UN High Commissioner, I mean, as, and as a reporter, you know, I, I witnessed him, you know, very publicly confront member states, powerful member states, as we discussed earlier. Do you think um, perhaps he'll, he'll moderate in, in a way? Well, you know, it's a different, uh, it's, a, it's going to be a different game. I think, you know, he's, again, he's, uh, political and diplomatic skills uh, will be tested all the time, and I think he will certainly uh, uh, be extremely careful in deciding when to address issues in, uh, you know, through private channels uh, and, and to try to, you know, to bring countries together. You you cannot be screaming, you know, in the public place all the time. You know, so, so some work has to be done in a quiet way, and I think he 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 will he will do that certainly. And then he will decide when it's time for him to say, because he, you know, has to hold up the charter of the UN, etc., when he will have to say publicly that uh, he needs countries to come together in a more efficient way. So I think it's going to be a mix between, you know, bilateral dealings, you know, trying to convince people. And as I say, he's a, 
He's a forceful communicator, and he's a passionate communicator, uh, and went to went to go more public, and we'll see how that uh, how that develops. Uh, okay. Any final thoughts on on what we should look forward to based on your experience working with him uh, uh, in various capacities as high commissioner? Well, my 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 main thought when the whole process developed was was that the UN had announced a transparent process. And despite the interest of having someone from Eastern Europe and having a woman as the first Secretary General, the UN was quite truthful in saying, well, we've run a transparent process, there have been a s- series of selection criteria, and we at the end decided to choose the person who did the best in, in that whole selection process. And I think this is a remarkable improvement over over the past, and it's a, it's a glimmer of hope for an organization that tends to be criticized perhaps a little bit too much. So that, that was the first lessons we've learned on that. The other one is that we are so happy that Mr. Guterres has been appointed that we should not be unfair in, in, in bearing on his shoulder expectations that the world will change over, over, uh, overnight, and we should, we should be realistic. He has tremendous challenges. But one thing I'm quite happy is that uh, one of the legacy of the outgoing uh, secretary, of course, is these two events he had had this year, the humanitarian summit in Istanbul, and then the uh, meeting on refugees and migrants that for a whole day took the attention of all the the members of the the General Assembly this year. And and there is a series of initiatives that have to be developed over the next two years on a global compact on refugees, a global compact on migrants. And I think it is great that for the UN, at the time when these are the legacies of the previous Secretary General. You have a new Secretary General who comes in and is acutely aware of the importance of what this mass movement of people um, uh, is taking place in the world. And, you know, this is not just, it's probably the beginning of it. So I think it's a, it's, it's a great assignment uh, for uh, Mr. Guterres in that he comes very well prepared for the challenges ahead. And I would also uh, mention that he was one of the first person to foresee the impact of climate change on on the mobility of people. And uh, so he'll be able to tie in uh, the question of human mobility uh, to the question of climate change uh, that are two of the greatest challenges for the UN in in the decade to come. Uh, Well, Michel, thank you so much for your time. And and this will be interesting to to see the, the coming months and years. Thank you very much. No, my pleasure. All right. Thank you all for listening. That was super helpful. And I know a whole lot more now about the next UN Secretary General than I did before. And I suspect you do too. Um, before we go, I wanted to make one last fundraising, or not one last, uh, hopefully one last, if, if the response is sufficient, but uh, one more fundraising appeal. If you're listening to this contemporaneously around the time it was published, chances are we had an ad to go with it, which was great. It's really helpful, but it's it's not enough to sustain this uh, going forward in the way that I need it to be sustained. So if you have the capacity interest, if you are someone who listens to this podcast day in and day out, every single time a new episode comes up, you listen to it, you devour it, please consider making a monthly recurring contribution. You can go to globaldispatchespodcast.com 
patreon.com and click the uh, contribute link and we that link will send you to paypal uh which will collect your your credit card information or or whatever um and then pay me at the end of every month and help cover the costs of putting out this podcast production costs time costs Hopefully in the near future, if, if enough of you guys uh, contribute travel costs as well, I'd love to to fly around the country and interview more people in person and offer a little more context. But but for now, I'm, I'm that's a, a boy can dream. But but really for now, I, I, I would so appreciate your support. So thank you, thank you, thank you, and uh, stay tuned. We have some great episodes coming up. All right, see you soon. Bye. <laughs>